This is the Like-Minded Investors Real Estate Podcast, episode number 14. Welcome to the first episode of the Back to Basics series on the Like-Minded Investors Podcast. In this little series, we will have a few episodes where Kira and I will go into detail on some some terms that every real estate investor and every entrepreneur really sh- should should know. Um, things like what is a house hack? What is a burr? What is a cash out refinance? And so many more terms that get thrown around very often uh, in real estate, whether it be in books, podcasts, and even some of our own episodes. We want everybody who wants to invest in real estate or already is investing in real estate to really understand what these terms mean. So in this specific episode, the first of the back to basics episodes, we are going to do the most basic terms that we can think of and kind of paint that picture. And then with each episode in the series, we will kind of increase the knowledge a little bit to intermediary and a little more complex. Um, And then also, Bill, don't forget to announce that you have an electrician in the background. That's right. There is an electrician (laughs) upstairs working in my house, which leads to the next point here of why, you know, we feel we should be the ones to kind of explain these terms, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We, I feel like it's going to be really cool. We're we're both going to go into, you know, Bill, he's doing his first investment, which is a live in, well, it was supposed to be a live in flip, which I think now has changed, which we'll go over. Um, And then, you know, I'll go back to our first house hack. And I think a lot of the terms that we're going to go over and strategies and stuff that we're going to go over um, are great for first time investors. Like I, like anytime anybody reaches out to me, on Instagram or, um, you know, I'm doing the bigger pockets rookie, uh, boot camp. Actually, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that on here, but, um, <laughs> oh, well, uh, so I'm doing that and, you know, it's a second round of that. So it seems like a lot of people, you know, start with house hacking and start with live in flips or live in burrs. Like, I feel like it, it's a great place to start. And since Bill and I are both doing both of those things right now. I started with the house hack. I am currently doing live in burr. He is currently doing a live in what, well, like I said, was supposed to be a live in flip, but now it's probably a live in burr. Um, I think, I think we have a lot of knowledge to be able to give, give out to the, the community and the audience. So, uh, without further ado, I guess let's get started. Let's do it. All right. So let's start, I guess, with the types of properties. So there are, I feel like, so we're, we're not going to get into anything commercial. We're going to, we're going to stick with what a first time homeowner, first time investor, uh, can kind of get into realistically. So that's going to be what bill a single family, a one to four unit multifamily and possibly in some areas, a single family house with an ADU, which ADU stands for accessory dwelling unit, which usually means the property has a, uh, a single family house on the property and then somewhere else on the property, which is usually detached. It's usually not attached to the property. It's usually detached. Um, so for us, it was a single family house and then we had a garage and above the garage, there was a one bedroom apartment. Um, so it could also be, you know, you could have like a, 
I feel like I've heard them called like a granny flat in mm-hmm. the back or yeah. a, um, a bungalow in the back or an in-law suite, which sometimes could be attached, but I would make sure you look for a detached in-law suite. If you're looking for a single family with an, with a, with an ADU. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of been my experience with the, with the single family plus an ADU. I think those are the three main ones we should probably focus on, right? I mean, for most rookies, you're not going to be able to have access to infinitely amounts of money to do any kind of apartment syndication or partnerships or anything like that. And if you do kudos to you, but I think the 80 or 90% of people like me are probably, you know, people who have saved a few thousand bucks or looking to put, you know, three and a half, five, 10, 20% down and maybe have some money put aside for some, some, you know, rehab and are just looking for something to kind of get started. Right. Right. So we'll start, I guess, with the terms. So single family home, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's typically, I feel like it kind of is self-explanatory <laughs> in the fact that it's a, it's a home with only one unit. And this could be a standalone home. Uh, single family homes are also, you know, you can, you can also buy a town home. You can buy a row house. You can buy a, a, a twin. And they can all technically still be single family because of the fact that, yeah, they may be attached to another, another um, home or another dwelling or whatever, but it's still, you're, you're buying one, one property with one deed with one technically single family should be owning it. So that's kind of that, that that's kind of the single family uh, definition um, Bill, do you want to get into the small multifamily? Yeah, sure. So small multifamily is considered anything with two to four units. So, uh, Kier just said that a single family is one unit. So two to four is considered small multifamily and, and, and why it isn't more for whatever reason, I don't know all of the finer details, but anything greater than five, you would need a commercial loan. Whereas two to four units, you're allowed to get what is considered a conventional loan, which is the, the loans you would typically get when you're buying a house as a primary residence. Um, so you'll hear, you know, a two unit often be called a duplex, a three unit be called a triplex, and then a four unit be called a fourplex or a quadplex in some places, depending or on- quadruplex. I'm like, is, or it, quadra. is, it, is it quad or is it quadra? I don't know. I would say um, regions may vary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're both from the East Coast so, uh, and very close by, so we probably use the same terms, but I would yeah. imagine other places across the U.S. might use different ones. But um, the difference between the single family and the multifamily is that there are multiple units within the property. So when you buy the property, you know, whether it's top and bottom or side by side or, or, or whatever it is, there are multiple places where people can live. And why that's advantageous to somebody looking to get started in real estate is because you can rent out those other units. So if you were to get, let's say, a duplex, you could live in one unit and then rent out the other one. Or a triplex, you could rent out both units. Or a quad, you could rent out the other three units. Or in some places, I've seen other people where they might have mom and dad, and mom and dad lives on the other side, so they kind of live side by side. Um, 
and it might not be, you know, for real estate investing, but it is for more like family purposes. Maybe mom and dad are getting older and you want them to be nearby, but they want to have their own space and they can't find a property with the ADU or something like that, or it's not in their budget. So um, there's a lot of benefits to the multifamily because um, then you can get the additional income and all of that kind of stuff. It's really cool too. I've, I've actually been noticing there have been a lot of areas, like I have like all my family and cousins and stuff. They're like all spread out across the United States. Like I've been noticing that there are a lot of areas where originally only single families were allowed. And now because of the quote unquote housing shortage, um, they're actually allowing people to build like ADUs in their backyards, which is kind of cool. Because it's, it's almost like, you know, if you, if you own a property and you bought it thinking of one thing and you've, and you only analyze it in one way of only getting, let's say $1,500 a month rent from this property. Like now all of a sudden you're able to build an entire granny flat or ADU or whatever you want to call it, whatever they call it, you know what I mean? And um, get additional income for it from it. So I think that's kind of cool to think about too, is there's definitely like changing. You have, you definitely have to like check with your local authorities in the areas that you're looking to invest and see like what you're able to do with the properties. Cause there's definitely, there, there might be some more stuff that you can do with it than you think. Not only what you can do, but what also has been done as well. I think um, in some places I know near where I'm at, there are some multi small multifamilies, two to four units that somebody might have done that way. And it may or may not be grandfathered in, but that particular area is looking to make everything single family and it's giving benefits to do so um because a lot of them weren't permitted and things like that and they like the idea of the single family because prices and all that kind of fun stuff so um definitely check with your local municipality in terms of what has been done make sure everything's permitted and and okay and zoned correctly and if you want to buy a single family let's say and there's room to put an adu on it make sure that you have those conversations before you buy the property to make sure that it will be approved because if your numbers don't work and that doesn't get approved, if your numbers don't work without it and then it doesn't get approved, now you just have a regular primary residence like everybody else. Right, <clears throat> right. Yeah, there was actually a property we had bid on, I would say it's close to two years ago now. It was just a couple houses down from our first house hack. And we analyzed it as if um, it was just going to be a single family house. And we put in an offer just as if we were going to rent it as a single family house, but our, 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 in the back of our mind, our thing was we wanted to turn it into a single family with an ADU and we had gotten permission and all that stuff. Like we call like, even before we put an offer in, we called ahead of time, made sure that the borough was going to allow us to do that kind of stuff. Um, however, they said, you know, we actually can't approve anything until you are the owners of the property. So mm-hmm. we actually had to analyze that property as if it was, it could only be a single family, like one unit rental. So that's how we put it in our offer. And uh, long story short, we didn't get it. It sold like probably a year and a half later for less than the offer that we had originally put in. So had I, I am going to tell everybody out there, I am the worst with follow-up. So 
<laughs> if anybody wants to come on my team and help me with follow-up, that'd be awesome. Um, but I am the worst with follow-up. So had I been in contact with that agent or with that owner, we would have definitely gotten that, that property for, you know, what we wanted to get it for. And we actually just recently found out that the new owners did do exactly what we wanted to do. They wound up being able to add the ADU and they're making bank on that property. So, um, yeah, definitely <laughs> follow up is key. And then, you know, but the thing is that at that time, like I, we could not have put in an offer based on the contingency of maybe being able to rent it out. So it was kind of, I don't know. I felt like it was in like a little bit of a catch 22, but yeah. So <laughs> fun yeah. story, fun story there. <laughs> so as far as um, the single family with an ADU, I mean, I mean, actually it's probably the same with, with uh, you know, any multifamily property. I feel like debt to income is super important. And I actually, get asked this question a lot about, uh, you know, how long, how long does it take for your income from the rental property or the rental portion of your property to actually be counted towards your debt to income? So I guess maybe before we get into that bill, do you want to explain, I feel like you are, you know, you're, you're more recent to the debt to income thing. Yep. Do you want to explain a little bit more about debt to income, why it's important, why people need mm -hmm. to think about it and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So for a common person who's looking to get started in real estate, whether it be actual investing or purchasing a primary residence, debt to income is what the bank looks at. And the reason why the bank is looking at your debt to income is they want to assess the risk that you're going to be able to pay on the debt that you're taking out, right? Because in essence, a mortgage is the bank covering the purchase price for a term, which is usually 30 years for most people, right? Although it can be 15 or 20, but mostly 30. And they just want to make sure that you're, you're good on your payment, like you can pay. So debt to income, put simply, is it's just a, a, a calculation uh, based on what your current debts are and your personal finances uh, compared to what your income is. So for most people, income is going to be their W-2 salary or a 1099 uh, salary if they're a real estate agent or a contractor for the government or, or software or something like that. So it's going to be whatever it is, you know, whatever your typical income is. Now for other people who are already in real estate, they might be able to use rental income or you know, business income, if they own a business or something like that. But for, for your everyday person, I would guess most people have one W-2 income job, or if they're married or have a spouse or significant other, maybe, maybe two incomes um, and maybe a side hustle for some people. Maybe they sell stuff on eBay or Etsy or Uber or Grubhub or something like that, but mostly just W-2. So in that case, you're really just taking your existing monthly debt uh, and dividing it by your monthly income. So if you make, let's say, $120,000 a year to keep it simple, that'll be $10,000 a month, right? 120 divided by 12, $10,000 a month. And then what the mortgage company is going to be looking for is they're looking at, you know, debt. So they're looking at what you pay, what, uh, student loans, car loans, existing mortgages, per, any kind of personal or business loans that might be tied to your name directly and credit card debt. So what they'll do is they'll, they'll look at what you pay monthly. So for a typical person, uh, just, you know, average person, 
she might make he or she might make 120k a year, ten thousand dollars a month. They might have five hundred dollars a month in student loans, a four hundred dollar car payment, and let's just say the minimum on the credit card is like a hundred bucks a month. So the the debt would then be a thousand dollars a month. Um, the income's ten thousand, so the DTI would be ten percent. Now, when a bank or a mortgage lender is looking at what your DTI is, they're looking at a number where they don't want your mortgage to be more than what? 40% of, is it 40% of your income care or is it? Uh, I think it's 43. 43. Yeah. So when they're assessing what your DTI is, mortgage itself can't be more than 43%, but they're also assessing what your current existing debts are and how they stack up. They don't want you to be certainly over leveraged because they know people have food and entertainment and, and you got to heat the house and have electric and all that stuff. So, you know, they don't want to over leverage you right off the bat. And that's kind of their screening practice. Right. And I think a huge thing too, to note on that is I see a lot of people saying that they'll be able, you know, the, the, uh, company will be able to include the rental income. So, I'm sure that's possible. And I'm sure you can call around to a bunch of different lenders and find somebody who is going to be okay with you being a first time landlord and, uh, allowing you to include, um, say, say you're house hacking or yeah, say, say you're house hacking and you have, or especially if you're doing an ABU, like I did, um, you have somebody about renting a one bedroom apartment of, above your garage. Uh, you know, you might be able to find a lender who is going to allow you to include that as part of your income for from from the very beginning however most i probably called 10 lenders and all of them wanted us to have 2 years of landlord experience so 48 months and it's funny i was just talking about this with somebody else today but uh, it's not just for us, at least it was not just two years of, of tax returns of being a landlord. It was 48 months. So from the time that person moved in, they wanted to see that we were a landlord from 48 months from that first tenant moving in. So definitely like call around too, because, you know, if, if you are buying a property, let's say you're buying a two, three, four unit property. how nice would it be to be able to include the income that's coming in from those other units? However, there are going to be some lenders who are going to be like, no, you're not, you're not an experienced landlord. We don't trust you to actually keep those units occupied and actually, you know what I mean? Like keep, Mm -hmm. like keep them going in a way that, that actually acts as a business and it's going to give you income. So I think that's super important to note too, is definitely ask around and find a lender who is going to work with you on, on that income portion too. If you are, if you're looking to use the income from, from one of the other rental units in there. And then two, another important thing to know is they'll never count hundred percent of the rental income that you get. So, you know, say, so we're getting like 10, 15 from the apartment above our garage. They don't count 10, 15 a month. They take out for vacancy, which I think they did like eight to 10% vacancy. They take out for management fees, even though we are uh, self-managing, they still take out for that because that's something that most people, most people don't self-manage except for in the beginning. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's another 8%. So there are a lot of things that they take out for that you, you can't just be like, oh, I make a thousand dollars a month on this property. I'm going to 
add a thousand dollars to my, to my debt to income or to my income. Uh, it's that, that's not how it works. So definitely dive into those numbers and make sure it's like call lenders, see what they're, what they, what they require, see what they're going to take out of your income. If you're doing a, a small multifamily property or, you know, a single family with an ADU, because it can definitely vary. Yeah, absolutely. And and we in this example, just because it was simple math, we used a rather high salary. So if you have all of those payments I described, like a four hundred dollar a month car payment or five hundred dollars in student loans, the less the less the bottom number is, the higher that percentage is going to be. So um, in some cases, it would be advantageous to you know try to use the rental income or a portion of it, but but also be cautious. And of course, we want to say don't over leverage yourself. You know, you know the bank is assessing their risk, but you should also assess yours as well. Ooh, I love that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess let's get into the numbers and kind of how yeah. you analyze a, a live-in type situation, because we kind of want this episode to be about and for people who are considering doing a house hack or doing a live-in burr like I'm doing or doing a live-in flip like Bill was going to do, but now I'm pretty sure he's also doing a live-in burr. So we're kind mm-hmm. of on the same page now. Yep. <laughs> um, so I think a super important thing to analyze as part of your, your numbers is, is a loan-to-value ratio. Because for a lot of us, that are doing live-in stuff, we're, we're, we're kind of, I don't know, you move into these properties and then we decide to renovate them and we kind of have to have some kind of a return on our own investment, whether it be like the heartache of having to live in a makeshift kitchen, which if you guys are on YouTube, you can see uh, Bill right here. Yep, he's pointing to his, his makeshift kitchen right now. So Beautiful toaster oven <laughs> yes. that has made very many leftovers. Yeah. Yeah. So we had to make like sacrifices and stuff like that. So, um, I'm 100% positive, or at least I, you know, you should not be moving into a property that you're paying full price for that you still have to renovate. So you're, you're getting some kind of a discount. So loan to value, I feel like is super important bill. I feel like you could really speak to that right now yeah. because you had analyzed your property in a couple different ways. And I think that people would really benefit from listening to how you kind of made the shift from deciding to do this live and flip to doing a mm-hmm. live and burr and still how the numbers work relative to a loan to value ratio. Yeah. So I'm probably going to throw a lot of terms out here. Some okay. might seem more complicated than others. So bear with me, folks. I will try my best to explain everything. And if I can't, it'll be on the next one. Yes. Um, so loan to value put simply is a ratio that uh, is literally the amount of money you're taking out and borrowing versus the amount of money the house is worth. So when you buy something, uh, typically you need to put 20% down. Now as a primary, you might be able through different lenders to do an FHA or a conventional with less than 20% down. But for the simplicity of it, you bought a house for $100,000, you put $20,000 down, the bank is going to write a check for $80,000 to the seller, and then you're going to pay the bank back that $80,000 over 30 years or 15 or 20 or whatever your term is. They're going to take an interest rate for it from you. 
right now they're kind of low. What are they like between two and 3%. So that's great. Um, but blown to value is that $80,000 number divided by at least to start the purchase price or the appraised price. So 80% in my case would be your loan to value. 80 grand divided by 100 grand is 80%. Now, when you go to rehab a property, you're hopefully adding enough value to the property that when you're looking to refinance it or take a HELOC out on the property, not only are you getting your money back, but it's forcing that bottom number, the denominator of that calculation to be a higher number. And the top number will actually go down because you're making monthly payments on it. So in this scenario, let's say after all of your rehab budget in this example, it doesn't really matter. We're just going to do simple calculations. So let's say you put money into the property and that bottom number, you bought it for a hundred, let's say it's worth $200,000 now. And then let's say that $80,000 number, you paid it down. Now it's 80, now it's like $75,000. The loan to value would be 75,000 divided by 200,000. So what that calculation is, is now you're, you have so much equity in the property. It's well over 50%, right? Cause 50% would be a hundred divided by 200. So it's like, I think like 66% or something like that. If my math is correct, which sometimes it isn't. So Banks will allow you on a primary residence to actually take money out of the property and only leave 20% in. And on investment properties, a lot of the times it's, they'll allow you to leave 30% in. So what, what you'll see a lot of the times is a, a lender will say, hey, we'll give you a cash out refinance 80% LTV or 70% LTV. That means that you have to leave 20 or 30% in the deal. So when you do a cash out refinance on this scenario, you would be able to then, if your mortgage was $75,000 left because you paid down $5,000 and it's worth $200,000, you would then be able to refinance and get a mortgage back all the way up to 70 or 80% of that $200,000 purchase price or, or what it's worth, not purchase price. Um, same, similar with a HELOC where instead of a cash out refinance, they're not going to just write you a check. They're actually going to loan you the money on the equity that you have. So the difference between a cash out refinance and a HELOC is a cash out refinance. They're writing you a check right there when you refinance it. And now you have a brand new mortgage and that mortgage now is 80% loan of value on that new appraised price of $200,000. A HELOC, you get to keep the original mortgage where you only owe $75,000 now and every month it's going down another couple hundred bucks. Great. But that $125,000 of equity you still have, 75 to 200, you can then take a loan on that. Now the bank will charge you an interest rate on that as well. But in some cases where the deal might be a little too thin to do a refinance or the cash flow, meaning the money that you're profiting every month as a rental is not as great because you're taking a higher mortgage out, the HELOC might be more of an advantageous move. Yes. So let's get into real quick. I have a really great example. I did this exact thing that you're talking about. So when we, so we originally purchased a single family house and had an, uh, a one bedroom apartment above the garage. So it was a single family with an ADU. 
accessory dwelling unit. Um, so we purchased the entire property for $108,000, uh, closing costs and blah, blah, all that stuff brought us to 111,000. Um, the renovation of the, the ADU was like 14 ish thousand. The reno on the house was 33,000. Um, which actually also allowed us, it was a three, one, we, when we first bought it, but that all that 33, $33,000 allowed us to also make it into a four bedroom, two bathroom. So that really increased the value. Like guys, if anyone is out there, if you can find a two bedroom that is easily convertible to a three bedroom or a three bedroom, that's easily convertible to a four bedroom. I think that's like the absolute best way to make some of your money back. Um, I don't think that you're going to make a ton of money making a one to a two or a four to a five, but you know, making a two bedroom to a three bedroom or three bedroom or four bedroom, I feel like that is kind of money. So if that's possible, go ahead and do that. Um, (laughs) but anyways, so, uh, and then I think our refis cost us cause we did, oh my gosh, I feel like, I think I talked about this in my episode what I was episode number five, right? So if you guys want to go back and listen to episode five, I think I dive really deep into these numbers, but we wound up doing like three different refis. And over the course of those refis, it costs us like about $2,000 to do all those refis. So basically like our total costs were, what does that bring us to? 55,000. So 55,000 plus the original, you know, total cost of 111,000 to purchase is 166,000. So, uh, we wound up once everything was all said and done, the, the apartment was renovated. Our entire house was renovated from a three bedroom, one bathroom to a four bedroom, two bathroom. We wound up going for a, uh, refinance. So we got a refinance at, I think our appraised value was 268. So 268,000. Um, and then because we were owner occupants, which is a huge thing here. And I love like that. This episode is kind of geared towards people that would love to live in a property. I think that I would love to touch on the fact that being an owner occupant, you can take more of your equity out of the property than if you are just an investor. So I think Bill touched on that just a few seconds ago, where if you're an owner occupant, like I've heard of some people being able to take 90% uh, out of 90% loan to value out of their property. So, which means they're able to take 90% of the equity out of their property and only leave 10% equity in the property, uh, which is huge. And I know, so when we looked into getting a refinance on one of our duplexes, the most I could find right, at least right now, and then people I called was 70%. So that's a huge difference of being able to take 20% equity out of your property when you're an owner occupant. So I think that can like really propel you forward in getting started or furthering your real estate investing when you're an owner occupant. Um, Bill, do you have anything to touch on before I I continue on with this? (laughs) I was just going to say that you're a hundred percent right. Like in some cases you, if you're an owner occupant, you can get 80, 85 or 90 as compared to the 70 or 75 that might come as an investor. That being said, some lenders might increase the interest rate or add points onto the closing costs or something like that. So just be aware of it and run those numbers 
each scenario, make sure they work, all that stuff. Don't try to force the square peg in the round hole just to get all of your money out and then be paying an arm and a leg and interest rate on your HELOC. Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, so what we wound up doing was since our property, since that single family with the ADU appraised for 268 and we were able to take 80% of the value of the property out, um, it came to like 214.4. So our, our lender rounded to 215. So we were able to take $215,000 out of this property. And what we wound up doing was we turned that property into, we decided to get a $175,000 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And I believe what we're paying right now is 3.85%. And that was super good because this was, this was prior to the pandemic and, you know, thing, uh, interest rates have just dropped since, since the pandemic. So pre-pandemic 3.85 was amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we took 175,000 fixed rate loan at 3.85%. And then we decided to actually take the extra $40,000 that we could still take out on our property. We decided to take it as a HELOC instead of as like just a fixed rate mortgage, because if we had taken it as a fixed rate mortgage, we didn't know what we were going to do with that money yet. With the 175,000, we knew what we were doing with it. We were paying for another duplex we had bought. We knew that was going to go somewhere. We knew that was going to start making us money on our money, but that extra $40,000 we're like, we're not exactly sure where this money's going to go. Is this money going to make us money? So we were kind of, um, and I'll actually, in all hindsight, I kind of wish we had taken it as just like uh, an entire mortgage because now it's like we could have put that into other properties. But at the time, you know what I'm saying? Hindsight's 2020. So just do what is best for you in the situation. But in, so in that situation, taking the $175,000 fixed rate mortgage was best for us. And then taking a $40,000 HELOC was best for us because it was kind of like, I think the $40,000 HELOC at that time, and it still is, it's at, it's at 3%. So the HELOC was a little bit less in interest payments for us. And if we didn't use that money, we weren't paying on it, which is kind of what I loved about it. We had this $40,000 that we could potentially use, but we weren't paying on it unless we had to be, unless we had to use it. And if we, and if we quote unquote had to use it, it in our minds, we were going to be using it for something that was going to make us money. So um, that's kind of why we decided to, to do that. So the downside of the HELOC, I feel like is it's, it, it's variable and, you know, we actually wound up, um, which we won't probably get into on this episode, but we kind we did wind up using, I think like 33,000 of it to put down on the live in burr that we're doing right now. So had I known that, you know, four months later, we would have found this other property. Um, I definitely would have taken out the entire fixed rate because now we're kind of locked into, um, yeah, we're paying down this HELOC every month and we can continue to reuse it, but we only have 10 years to, to use this HELOC. And then we have 10 years to repay it. So, um, it's kind of like, I don't know. It, it depends on your situation. Like if you know where your money's going and you know, you're going to use that money in that same spot for, for 30 plus years or whatever, 
maybe we should have taken out that, that 30 year mortgage, but at the time we didn't know what we were doing. So it's kind of nice though. Now, because we have this HELOC, we can continue paying it back. We can always take back out the money for at least 10 years. And then we have 10 years to pay it off. So um, and after those 10 years are up, you can also call the bank up and get another HELOC at the newly appraised value of the house as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Which and is then, great. And then too, you know, the beauty of it too is, I mean, I'm sure it's even more now, but at the time we still had 20% equity in our properties. So yeah. if the market were to shift and there was going to be like a complete downturn, I mean, if the market shifted five, 10, 15, 20%, we're, we're still okay. Like we're, yeah. we're not going to go into foreclosure. So. Yeah, yeah. It's all about not over leveraging yourself. Some debt can be good debt, but understanding what that debt can do for you and understanding how you can leverage it to your advantage, I think is super important. One of the things I don't think we said, I think we just jumped into the acronym HELOC is what it stands for. <laughs> Um, it yes. stands for home equity line of credit. It's a little different than um, a home equity loan. Home equity loan is when they just, similar to a cash out refinance, they write you a check. Except that check, you're paying interest on it. Um, so it's similar to a mortgage in that regard. Whereas a line of credit almost is like a credit card yes. for the equity in your house. Like think about your credit card where you have a line of credit for 10,000, 15,000, $20,000, whatever it is, you swipe it. And you only pay for that thousand bucks, right? You know, that's all you're paying for. That other nine thousand dollars you have as you're on a credit, you're not paying an interest rate on that. They don't, they don't care. They just don't want you to exceed that number. Similar with the HELOC or the home equity line of credit, in that you might have forty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars in credit. You don't have to use all of it. You can use it for repairs. And a lot of people use HELOCs or home equity loans, depending on, on their situation and what's advantageous for them. But a lot of people on their primaries use them for, for college education for their kids, for rehabbing a kitchen or for their daughter's wedding. If you know, they're traditional and you know, want to pay for the wedding, or in some cases, if both parents are paying, they both equally as they're coming together as one family might take loans, lines of credit or loans on their each property. Um, the possibilities are truly endless. Um, but for real estate investors, it's a great tool to kind of catapult yourself into um, whether into, you know, getting that next deal or, or, or figuring something out. I think that's super important too, to note. Uh, they do definitely ask what you are going to be using the money for. And they, I am never, I would never tell you to lie about what you're using the money for. I've always been honest. And I like, for the most part, we've always been like, yeah, we're using, we're using this money to buy another property. However, I have learned over the course of the past couple of years that lenders really like it when you're using the money to, to renovate the actual property that you are getting the mortgage on or the HELOC on or the loan on whatever you're doing, because they kind of feel like it's, it's almost reinvesting the money that they're loaning you. And, you know, you're going to put it into windows or siding or roofing or something like that, which is only going to increase the value of the property that they're loaning on. So, um, uh, I feel like that's a, a good point to note. And I yeah. feel like that's why we were able to get our first two HELOCs. Cause like I said, which if you go back to episode five, you'll be able to hear why we wound up getting three <laughs> loans over the course of, of time. Um, but I think that's why we got our first two HELOCs is because, you know, we truly were using it to renovate the actual house, turning it 
making the AD or the apartment above the garage into an actual like livable space that somebody would actually move into. And then the second one to actually make it from a three bedroom, one bathroom to a four bedroom, two bathroom, like, like who's not going to loan on, on that when you can prove the fact that, you know, a three, one versus a four, two, you're going to way increase the value versus how much you're borrowing. So yeah, the I think bank, that's important. The bank looks at it in terms of their risk, right? They're yeah. selfish. They want to they want to get their they want to get paid. They want to get their money back. So yeah. if you're fixing up the property and making it nicer, they're going to then have less risk because let's say you you default and you can't make any payments. Well, if you made the property nice, they're going to be able to sell it for the price that you made it nice for, and odds are your your line of credit plus your mortgage is significantly less than that price of what you made it nice for. Right. So it, it's all about their risk. Right. And then I don't know, Bill, do you want to get into uh, return on investment and um, net operating income? I feel like those are two super important things that people get confused all the time. Yeah, I, I do. And then I think we should also touch on what a house hack and a burr is as well. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. What should we get into first? I think we should get into the house hack and the burr. Okay. So let's talk, I guess, about um, house hacking. Yeah. So I, Bill, you haven't house hacked yet, right? This is, this is your first thing you're doing. You're doing the living burr, right? Yeah. My, my goal was to do a house hack and plans obviously changed with the market. Okay. So I am, so when we started, I don't want to say when we started, but um, the first time we used our primary residence, I should say, as an investment vehicle, we house hacked slash bird. So the house hack came into play where um, we rented out. So, you know, we purchased a single family house that had an ADU above the garage. So you could either to house hack, you can either buy something like that, or you can buy a one to four unit property. And house hacking means you basically rent out the other units that you aren't living in. Or if you're buying and want to house hack a single family property, you can rent out just the bedrooms, which I feel like is a little bit less popular than buying a two to four unit property. <laughs> um, Probably a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of, that's, that, that's where house hacking comes in. And then the burr, burr is BR. R R R. I feel like I feel like a lot of times people forget that last bur or that last R. I always forget how many R's it is, but if I if I say it, yeah, I know what each one stands for. Yeah, so it's buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. So it's it's B and then four R's. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the last R because you want that repeat. Um, yes. So so for the burr, basically, um, like I said, we we house hacked. And then we also bird because of the fact that we had to re we had to renovate the apartment above the garage. And then we also renovated our own house. And so with a burr, um, you renovate the property for the most part to an extent to where you're able to get out all of the money, which is the, the ultimate goal is to get out all of your money that you put into the, into the renovation, uh, when you refinance. So um, Bill, do you want to get a, I feel like you're, you're a lot better than, than me at explaining the very details on <laughs> yeah. how that would work. Yeah. So I'll, I'll dive into both. And I would say that when it comes to house hacking, 
you can get creative with it. It's not just a single family or an ADU or, or a two to four unit small multifamily. You can get super creative with it. I would go as far as to say that house hacking in, of it, in and of itself by definition would be hacking your home expense to the point where you're paying less than what an ordinary person who buys a primary residence would pay in your market. So if your market, the average mortgage is 1500 bucks and you're paying 1200 bucks because you have a garage that you're renting out or a basement and you made like a weird storage unit out of it, like you're house hacking because you're lowering your expenses. Now it might not be as drastic as some other people who are renting by the room or, or buying a duplex or a triplex and renting, you know, Ooh, their, their units wait. out. Flag. <laughs> I love that. I feel like there are not many other podcasts that touch on that. You can rent out your garage as storage. You can, yes, I, you can rent out your shed. Like, like there are way more ways to house hack than just running out the other unit or running out a bedroom. You can also Airbnb it short term, medium term. You you can have a travel nurse. I don't know how many travel nurses might want to like stay with you, but Hey, more power to you if they're willing and able. Oh my God, Bill, you know, know, I I am looking into, into the travel nurse profession and there are a ton of listings where people are just running out bedrooms in their houses to midterm, uh, you know, travel professionals. Why not? Right. I mean, there's a mark. People need to live somewhere. There's clearly a market for it. And if you can get creative as creative as you want in the house hack, and it's really about your comfortability. If you're not comfortable having anybody living in your space, maybe that multifamily is a little bit better for you. If you are maybe like a little bit younger, maybe you don't have a family and you don't care, or maybe your buddies need a place to live. Maybe that single family is cool where you have four bedrooms and you rent by the room. Maybe you travel a lot and you're not really home and you really don't care if someone sleeps in your bed or maybe you have you know sheets specific to people staying you can rent your room out if you want <laughs> yes who was it it was a uh, was it craig curlop on from bigger pockets oh no where oh oh my gosh maybe but I, there was somebody from bigger pockets that i remember uh listening to where they rented out like all of the bedrooms in their house and they literally like lived behind like cardboard like they lived on a couch and then like covered like made a room basically like out of cardboard like walls there's crazier things right you can get as creative as you're comfortable with and I, i find that probably as you get a little older not to be ageist, but typically, you know, the 22 year olds might be a little more flexible coming right out of college yes. <laughs> than, than maybe somebody in their thirties with, you know, a family of four that, that needs a bedroom, you know, or something like that. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you have a newborn baby that they can't sleep in the room with you in a, in a bassinet, and then you rent out the thing that would traditionally be a nursery. Yep. yep. Your, your comfortability matters and everybody's comfortability varies, but house hacking, you can be creative as you want and you can utilize the space in your home to be creative however you want you if you have a spare bedroom and somebody needs an art studio you can run it as an art studio as long as like the municipality is okay with it kind of because that might go into zoning and commercial space but the point stands you can do it (laughs) now going back to the burr we said it was buy rehab rent refinance repeat so I know Kier mentioned I'm better at details. So just going to go for it. So you're going to, the first thing you're going to want to do in a burr is you're going to need to buy the property and hopefully you're buying it at a severe discount because it's going to need some renovation. Right. So, you know, 
what your market can afford and dictate obviously varies across the United States. Study your numbers, know what properties are going for, know what you need to purchase the house for. So you're going to buy it for a discount and then you're going to rehab it. And what you're rehabbing, what goes into a rehab also varies by market. Some markets are A-class and you might want to put, you know, some, you know, handcrafted Italian marble that you get flown in from Sicily and other properties you might be putting, you know, some furniture from Ikea, which is totally okay. Um, every market is dependent and, and varied. And mo- I feel most people kind of fall in the medium between those two. So you're going to rehab it and what your rehab needs also varies depending on the property and hopefully is proportional to how much of a discount you got. If the property is falling apart, hopefully you got a big enough discount because you're going to probably need to add a new roof and new siding and new drywall and things like that. Whereas in other cases for rookies, a lot of people recommend doing what's called a cosmetic rehab, which is maybe just gutting the bathroom, maybe you know painting the cabinets, adding some backsplash, maybe a little bit new flooring, painting the walls and calling it done. It's a very simple and cheap way to add value and make it to a place where people say, Ooh, I want to live there. After your rehab's done and hopefully you didn't go over budget, then you're going to rent the property out and you hope to God that what you're renting it for is more than what you're paying in a mortgage and more than what you're holding for reserves. And then what you're going to do is you're going to call up a bunch of banks as many as you can or financial institutions or whoever's going to be a lender. And you're going to go, Hey, I want to refinance this property. And they're going to, you know, come out, appraise the property, see what it's worth after you rehabbed it. And hopefully it's worth what you, you know, you analyze the numbers for in the market. And then they're going to say, okay, we'll write you a 70% LTV mortgage. And you're going to get back X number of dollars. Now that money you get back is tax-free. And it's cash. Your mortgage that you originally had gets paid back on a refinance. And now you have a new mortgage. That mortgage is now 70% of what the value of the new price point is, which typically if you're adding value, 70% of a larger number is more in in a 30 month net term than 20% or eight, you know, 80% loan to value of a lower number. Granted interest rates come into play, taxes, abatements, things like that. So there is some variability there and you could get lucky with certain areas, opportunity areas, things like that. But generally your mortgage payment now jumps up, but you get all this cash back out. So you might be taking a little bit less on the cash flow, but you're getting now cash back tax-free to go buy property too. And that's where the repeat comes in because you don't want to mess that up. Cash sitting idle is bad. So when you refinance, they're going to write you a check and that check is hopefully everything you put in the property from down payment to closing to rehab. And if it's not, that's okay. Especially on your first, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to analyze your ARV wrong. You're going to, your purchase price might be too high. You might mismanage the rehab. You might fire a contractor and have to hire a second one and double those costs. You might underestimate the rehab. You might miss some things and and scope creep happens. Things come up, right? There's a million and one things that can go wrong in a birth. From the, the buy to the, you can also mismanage what's going to rent for, right? Or okay. what it appraises for on the back end. I mean, every step of the way, there, there's a chance for a mistake. You got to you gotta study and you got to run the numbers, whether it be in Excel or the bigger pockets calculator or, 
you know, your own homegrown one or, or other people I know sell them. Some people have been on the pod and there might be some in, in the show notes in respective episodes. Go listen, check out the show notes. There might be some cool calculators there that might help you with some of this stuff. Um, but definitely do it. Don't let the cash sit idle at the end and go try to find the property number two. Yeah. Freaking put your money to work. Like that is the, that, that was kind of what I was getting at when I was describing the reason that, you know, we did the $175,000 uh, fixed rate versus, you know, and then we got a $40,000 HELOC is because we didn't know how we were going to put that money to work yet. So <clears throat> I think it's super important exactly to know where you're putting your money and kind of bouncing off what you were talking about with, um, making sure that your money is, is, is getting to work and cash on cash return. I feel like a lot of people are a mm-hmm. little bit confused on cash on cash return. So, um, I thought maybe I could go over two examples of cash on cash return after you simplify it down for people. Cause I think you're better at simplifying and I at least have examples. <laughs> I'll, I'll try my best with cash on cash. I think what I'll do best is I think people mix up cash on cash versus ROI Yes. return, return on investment. So to put it simply cash on cash return is a subset of ROI. Return on investment is the return on the entirety of the investment that you make. So if I buy a property for $100,000 and I sell it for $150,000, I now have a 50% return on investment. Now, I didn't put $100,000 into the property. I might've only put $50,000 into the property. So with cash on cash return is what is my return on investment on the cash I put in? So that calculation would be cash out versus cash in in an equation. And that percentage is a different percentage. And a lot of people like cash on cash return in real estate because cash in hand, cash is king as it always has been. And the money in your pocket is precious when it comes to real estate because the name of the game in real estate is trying to see how many times you can reuse a dollar. Someone wise told me that. So that's why the Burr is so popular and the HELOC and, and cashing out refinance part aspects of it. Because if I put $20,000 into a property and I can get that $20,000 out, I can then reuse that $20,000 over and keep doing it over and over and over again without adding any capital, but adding real estate along the way, right? So what is my return on investment when it comes to the cash that I'm putting in? If it's infinite, that means that I am taking that $20,000 and getting it back out and using it again and again and again and again. If it's 20%, it might only be that I'm getting 20% of the cash I put in back out as a, on top of what I put put in, right? So I don't know, Kira, do you want to go over cash on cash? That's a little bit where I get a little weak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, you, you, you basically put it in the best way possible. I mean, basically cal- uh, cash and cash return calculates the cash earned. So, uh, cash earned on the cash invested in a property. So, um, basically it's, it, it's the cash and cash returns are calculated using in an investment properties, pre tax cash flow, inflows. So like what you're getting pre-tax. Um, and then 
you're going to kind of compare that against your, your outflows of, of being an investor. So you're going to divide the net cash flow by your total cash flow invested. So um, let's take here. Let me bring up my numbers actually real quick. I think I have them up. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, one of the duplexes that we bought, we bought it for like 115,000. Okay. So that's what we put into the property. We purchased the property for 115,000, including, you know, all closing costs, all that stuff. And we make $770 a month cash flow. Now that is after though, that's after property management, even though we do property manager management ourselves. Um, it's just something that, you know, if you're going to go to a bank and get a loan, they're going to include that you have property management. They don't care that you're doing it yourself. So, um, they're going to include that. So, you know, including property management, repairs, maintenance, all that stuff. So we're making $770 a month. So let's see, what is that? Uh, we bought it for, so it's like 7%, 7% ROI because we bought it for 115,000 and we're making $770 a month net cash flow. So that's kind of how you come up with, with your ROI. Now, is that ROI or is that cash on cash? Oh, I'm sorry. Cash on cash. <laughs> I was going to say, did you buy the property all in cash, that $115,000 mark? Oh, you know what? We did though. So would those be those, would that be the same? I think there is a weird scenario where ROI and cash on cash are the same. And it's when you buy all in cash. Yeah. So we did buy that. That's not a great example because yes, we did buy that property all in cash. Although, let me tell you though, we did not buy that property all in cash. Technically, we yes, we paid cash for it, but that duplex we actually bought from refinancing that first house hack. We we were able to make enough money. <laughs> we were able to make enough money from the rehab and from appreciation from that first house hack um, that when we went to refinance we were able to refinance enough money out of the property to be able to put it back into a, a this this other duplex and buy it in tech quote unquote cash when really the that that first house hack is kind of um is kind of the financing for that for that second duplex so so i have an example that okay. i think i can use for cash on cash so yes. my property here between down payment, because I, I financed it. So I put 5% down, I had closing costs, and then my rehab costs. That's all the cash out of hand. So uh, between closing and down payment, I think it was like roughly 16,000. Um, and I, my rehab has just exploded. I hate it, but I think it'll end up being about 55,000. So all in all, I'm going to spend $71,000 in cash on the property. Now, when I rent it, I should be able to cash flow. Now, I... I'm going to include the property management because I'm managing myself. So I'm going to probably make about $350 a month in cash flow. Now, if I opted to have someone else manage it, it would be less, but roughly $350 a month in cash flow. I just ran the numbers super quick and um, my cash on cash would be roughly about 6%. Okay. 
So uh, I, the question I get a lot is, do you have a minimum on cash on cash that you look for? I do not. I like cash flow over cash on cash. I was going to say, so, so what do you, you value cash flow more than cash on cash? I I do. Um, The reason being is I would eventually like to quit my W2 job. Um, So the cash flow matters more to me. Um, I feel as though a lot of people focus on cash on cash and they might let some solid deals fall through. And I am the guy that's willing to grind on those deals. So I'll be like the piranha that'll just eat, you know, whatever other people aren't willing to, to feast on. Um, So I'll, I'll eat all the leftovers. I, I don't care. Um, so I'll, I'll take a 6% cash on cash knowing that, um, I now have an asset that I can pull all my money back now, granted I'm locking it. So if we wanted to rerun those numbers, it should be an infinite cash on cash return. Cause I'm getting my money back out. Right. So, but if I were to leave all that money in, it would be a 6% cash. Is that a necessity for you to get all your money back out? Most, I would love to get most of my money back out so that I can keep repeating. Um, and that's why I value you think, the cash though, flow. That that's, that's harming you in this market. I feel like I don't know very many people that are able to do that in this market right now. No, I don't think it's harming me. Um, the fact that I can get all of my money out, I think is a plus. Um, whether it be via a HELOC or a cash out refinance, I think it's valuable to keep going. Um, people have different differing opinions on where the market is right now. Um, I know. I, I want to I get, wanna, I want to, I would I love to get into to, that, but I want to never be in a position where I don't have funds for the next deal. Yeah. Another reason why I care less about cash on cash is eventually I would like to use other people's money. And as yeah. long as I can pay them back and keep the cash flowing asset, I care less about what my return on their cash is. As long as I pay them back what I promise I pay them back. If that makes sense. So if I promise them that they're, if they're going to give me a hundred K and I promise them 10% interest, I'm going to pay them a hundred K plus 10% interest. But yes. what that equates to in terms of the cash on cash on the deal, I, I don't care as much about as long as it's cash flowing at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I just feel like it's, I don't know. I feel like people are becoming a little bit more like skittish of the market right now, especially with like long-term. I don't know. It seems like, I don't know, especially doing all this like coaching and stuff that I've been doing. It seems like a lot of newer investors are starting to get into short-term rentals. Like they think that's the only way to get into the, into the market and make things work. I think there is, and and we'll touch on the difference between short-term versus medium-term and long-term in a different episode. But I think there is a, as the market rises, the cash flow numbers on long-term tends to thin. And I think people are running the numbers only one way, which brings up another point for people who might be interested in starting. Run your numbers multiple ways. Run it as a rental. Run it as a flip. If it's a primary, run it as if you have to stay there for a decade. Run it as a short term. Run it as medium term. The more ways you run it, the more comfortable you'll be putting in those offers because you know it'll work four of the five ways or, or, or whatever it is you know, and, and whatever your comfortability level, if you're comfortable with it only working one way, th- then do it. But I would say that it becomes less risky, especially yeah. on your first one where everything can go wrong. I just told you my budget exploded. Well, I ran it three ways. I ran it as staying here as a primary. I ran it as a rental and I ran it as a flip. 
doesn't work as a flip anymore, which leaves me two options. And both of those options revolve around me using a HELOC to get deal two. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, we are kind of running out of time here, but I would love to really quickly get into the types of loans that are available to um, people. Gosh, I don't even know. Do we have enough time, Bill? I don't know, but we're going to get into it real quick. Um, We'll run through it and maybe we'll have to do another episode, but I would love to get into real quick about how, you know, there, there are definitely, especially the reason that I love the fact that um, you should, you should try and get into a real estate investment property as your actual primary is because there are a bunch of different loans that you can take advantage of yes. when you are, when, when you're looking to do that. So, um, you know, you can, for a one to four unit property, you can use an FHA loan. You can use a conventional loan. You can use, um, I don't even know if we'll get into this on this episode, but a non-QM loan, uh, you can use a VA loan. Um, there are three K to, yes, two or three K there are just, there, there are so many different types of things that you can get into. So real quick, uh, FHA loan, basically, um, this is a federal loan that is offered, um, by the government. I guess it's the government, right? It's government, government subsidized. I think. Yeah. Okay. It's the right word. Um, don't quote and me. And yeah, it's for anybody that's seeking a primary residence. So like you can't use an FHA loan if you're looking to buy an investment property. Uh, you can put down as little as 3.5%, which is awesome because I think that, you know, if you're looking to get started in real estate, how cool would it be to only have to put 3.5% down versus 20 to 25% that other lenders require when you're doing an investment property. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then I think, I, I actually don't know what the, I'm sorry, I don't really know what the credit score criteria are right now, but I feel like it's slightly lower than Bill, am I right? We'll link it in the show notes, the okay. FHA requirements, but there is a credit score limit. Um, there also are requirements on the property, you know, the FHA differs from the conventional one in terms of certain requirements on the property um, that you might be able to skirt by on a conventional. So just be yeah. aware of that. Um, yeah. And you yeah. can only have one FHA loan at a time for the most part. There are a couple very, very, very minuscule things that you can get around it. Like, you know, having to transfer so far out from your primary residence and there are a couple of things, but for the most Engaged part, aged couples that aren't married yet. And then when they get married is another loophole for Ooh, some folks good to that know. are out there. You know, if I'm engaged, I'm, I'm not. Um, <laughs> but if I were, then I could get an FHA loan under my name and, you know, future Mrs. Bill could uh, get one under her name. And then when we're married, the bank isn't probably going to force us to, to switch out of FHA. We just wouldn't be able to get another one. Okay, cool. Until so you- we refinance both of them. Right. So that's the other trick. But, okay, yeah. cool. So anybody that's not out there that does not have uh, a significant other, both of you go get FHA loans and you can have two. <laughs> um, so yeah, so basically, so the FHA loan, yeah, you can technically you can only have one under each name. Um, and then you are technically required to live. Usually you're technically required to live in the property for a year. So that is kind of another, I feel like hurdle that kind of slows down investing if FHA loans are kind of like part of your strategy. So 
conventional loans might be your next alternative. I personally, I love conventional loans. Like, I feel like if you call around, like, I feel like a lot of people think that conventional loans, you have to have 20 to 25% down, but you absolutely do not. Like I have talked to multiple, multiple, multiple companies that they only, they have five, 10, 15, 20% down loan programs. Mm -hmm. And the live in Burr that we're doing right now, we only put 5% down on, and it was a conventional loan. I put 5% on mine as well. Talk, talk to your lending company. Yeah. My understanding of the rules now, because I think they've changed since, since Kira and I may have started talking before we even started the podcast, but I think it's for single family, the minimum that uh, Fannie and Freddie allow uh, banks and, and lending people to do is 5%. But if it's a multifamily, I think the minimum is 15% now. Now that's if it's subsidized by Fannie or Freddie. There are institutions that don't sell the mortgages to Fannie and Freddie, and they can go as low as five percent on the multifamily. Call around, talk to people, do your research because there are advantages to going the conventional route. It's uh, different than the FHA. You can have multiple of them at the same time. Um, yep. You can put less down, which is great, and five percent compared to three and a half percent it's only one and a half percent. Also, when you're putting offers in a hot market, you're putting out those offers. Conventional is seen as better than FHA from the seller's perspective. So that extra 1.5% that you can maybe squeeze uh, would, would be a more conce- considered a better offer. Um, so there's, there's a bunch of different reasons to kind of, but research both, compare both what the payments are, things like that. There's other factors that go into it, like MIP versus PMI, what they are. Um, those MIP are stands for? Mortgage, mandatory mortgage. insurance premium. And PMI stands for private mortgage insurance. The difference being is that MIP is on an FHA loan. And for the duration of the FHA loan, it doesn't go away. But for a conventional loan, PMI goes away once you hit 20%. Yes. The re- what, but MIP and PMI basically are the same thing. And that is the bank, if you're putting less than 20% down, sees it being as, as more risky than 20% or greater down. So they want to collect basically a premium from you to offer you that service of putting less than 20% down. Yeah. Yeah. Get rid of the PMI as fast as possible. <laughs> or the MIP. I mean, you get an FHA, you can only have one in your name. If you're doing like a burr or a house hack or you're adding value to the property, that MIP won't be go away as long as you have it as an FHA, but you can refinance it into a conventional with 20, 25% you know, equity in the property. Then it goes away. And with, so and with the way that, scary. yeah. And with the way that things are appreciating, like, I don't want to say it's going to, I mean, probably people are going to listen to this in like six months and be like, oh my God, what the hell were they talking about? But like, you know, with the way things are appreciating at this moment, as we are recording, <laughs> um, you should easily be able to get rid of, rid of PMI um, fairly quickly, just with appreciation. Also, one trick that I learned is that the bank, even though it can go away at 20%. The bank isn't mandated to take it away unless it's 22% equity in the property. But at no 20%, way. you can make the phone call and get it taken away. So the difference between 20 and 22% might be like six months to a year because at the beginning of a mortgage, it's more interest heavy than principal mm-hmm. heavy. So um, get it. And depending on how much you put down, 
obviously depends on how close you are to that 20% number, but the bank isn't federally required to get rid of it until they hit 22% in most cases. Call when you hit 20% and they'll get rid of it. Oh my gosh. All right, guys, you heard that. I feel like that was a mic drop moment. And if you missed that, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to make that like a, what's it called? A, an audiogram <laughs> for an audio announcement for everybody. Um, oh my gosh. All right. I feel like this episode is kind of running a little long. Is it just me or the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on was non QM mortgages. Um, Bill, I don't know if you've ever looked into them, but I yeah. have. Okay. So Bill, you know, he's always had a W2. Uh, me and my husband, I am self-employed because I am a real estate agent and investor. My husband is a contractor and investor. So we are 100% self-employed. So we have had the, a little bit of an issue with finding uh, mortgages on properties because of the fact that we don't have like a steady W-2 where we can, you know, submit our pay stubs every single month. And the fact that, you know, especially in the winter, our income goes down because, you know, contractors, yeah, we have inside work and stuff, but uh, for our contracting business, at least it, it definitely goes down in, in the winter. So it's like, we don't have a steady income. So I think for all those people out there that are worried about having to get uh, pre-approved for a mortgage when they don't have a steady income or when they're self-employed or whatever, um, a non-QM mortgage might be a good thing for you guys to look into, which is something we've looked into. We have not used one yet. Luckily, we have not needed it yet. Um, but it basically non-QM is a non-qualified mortgage. And basically you do not have to uh, give the mortgage company all of your documentation as far as income requirements. You kind of, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and in return for not having to give specifics on that, your interest rate is a little bit higher. So um, it's kind of a trade-off. However, there are definitely ways, like, don't just say, oh, I'm self-employed. I can't, I can't get a mortgage. Like, Yes, you can. You can. You absolutely can find a mortgage lender who will not require you to submit all of this documentation and they will be able to provide you with some kind of a mortgage and it may be higher interest rate, but if the more if the numbers work for your deal, go after it. Like it doesn't like sit it doesn't matter if you're paying six, seven, 8% to a non-QM mortgage lender, or even maybe then if you figure out that, that they're charging six, seven, 8%, maybe then go after private money and go and pay somebody else six, seven, 8%. Um, it doesn't matter as long as your numbers work with whatever mortgage or whatever lender you're using, go for it. That's all that matters is that your numbers work. So um, a non- QM mortgage, I feel like a lot of people kind of look, look down on it and look, oh, you have that kind of a, a mortgage, whatever, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. If, if your numbers work, do it. Yeah, I find the people that kind of like poke fun at like what you're doing probably are jealous of what you're doing. Yeah. Um, your numbers work, go for it. Don't, doesn't matter what everyone else thinks. You know, yeah. trust your numbers, run them, be conservative. 
don't listen to everybody else. The second you start listening to everybody else, um, in terms of like the negative advice and saying don't do something or whatever, it's the second you know you're you're not going to be successful because you're going to have other people in your head and you're going to have some self doubt. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I feel like this is a good stopping point. I mean, you and I could, we literally have so much more stuff to talk about. I feel like we could talk about. This series uh, is going to be awesome. Ugh, we could talk about Bert or uh, short-term rentals. We could talk about midterm rentals. We could talk about. Private money, hard money. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Apartment so guys, syndication. <laughs> let, let's just say if you guys enjoy this episode, we love having guests, but Bill and I also love just like this is sometimes Bill and I will hop on the phone or hop on a Zoom call. And this is what we talk about. So if you guys kind of like what we're talking about here, send us a DM either at Billy Invest Philly at uh or me at uh oh my god, what's my what's my handle? realestate.cure right realestate.cure or we both share the handle at like-minded investors so if you guys want to reach out to him myself or both of us uh feel free to do so we would love to hear how you are liking these episodes and if you like our guests if you kind of like these solo episodes if you like a mix of the both um let us know because Literally, we are doing this for you guys. Like, yeah, Bill and I love chatting with each other and we do it anyways. So, um, you know, if, if you want us to record more of our conversations, we absolutely will. So reach out to us. Let us know what, what, what you're liking, what you aren't. We are completely open to praise and criticism alike. Yeah, we're, we're doing this to help everybody. So, you know, the more advice we get in terms of how we structure the episodes, the advice we give, the lessons, the stories from other people, the better we can do to help people. Yes. So if you guys want to hear more about those medium term rentals that we keep hearing about, let us know. If you want to hear more about like some of these basic terms from me and Kier, also let us know. If you want to hear more about my story or Kier's story, we can do other episodes. I think I was episode three and Kier was episode five. And I know so much has changed since I recorded mine. I'm oh, me too. too. So we can do those as well yeah 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 so we would love it guys we love for you to reach out let us know um and then i don't think you've ever actually asked this in an episode but guys please like we live off of your reviews and your five-star reviews especially within spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts. um i forget where else we are but anywhere that you listen to us please 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 give us five stars and give us a little bit of a good review it helps us kind of get out there into the into the podcast space and we appreciate it so 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 much also, if you aren't, make sure that you are subscribed. This way you're getting the little notification on your phone or, or you can see the new, that the newest episode is available. We want you guys listening. We feel you know, as though we're providing a service and we hope that everybody likes the service that we're providing, but make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you like whatever, you know. if there's a like button, smash the like button. If there's a share button, smash the share button. If there's a subscribe button, press it and then press the play button on every single episode we've recorded thus far and we'll record in the future. Yes. Yes. I love it. I love it. You guys, thank you so much. We will. So, you know, we're going to take all of your uh, criticism and loves and hates and likes and whatever to heart. Um, so 
definitely provide us with those. So we will be back next week, I guess, with an episode, hopefully with a guest. Um, maybe not depending on what you guys want to hear. So we'll see. So we will see you guys next week. Every single Tuesday, we drop a new episode. Um, I think they drop at what? 5am bill. 5am. 5am on Tuesdays. So be sure to tune in on your drive to work or your shower or whatever you're doing at 5am on Tuesday mornings. So we will look forward to seeing you guys. All right. Thank you so much. We will talk to you guys next week. Bye.